This episode is brought to you by HP Instant Ink. No one is reading your mind, but HP Instant Ink knows when your printer is running low and sends new cartridges before you run out. So you never have to think about ink. For details, visit hp.com slash instant ink Spotify. Conditions apply. This episode is brought to you by PayPal. These days, choices are everywhere. Like, for instance, the milk in your coffee. Would you like it from a cow? A nut? A tree? Everyone wants options. And now your customers have a new option in the way they pay. With PayPal in person. Just generate your unique QR code in the PayPal app for them to scan. And start accepting PayPal in person today. Learn more at paypal.com slash US slash get QR code. Episode of the Washington Female Podcast. Uh, today, we welcome Matt Pryor from the Get Up Kids. You may also know him from his solo work with the New Amsterdams and the Terrible Twos. Uh, Matt, I don't know if you knew this, but my first memory of the Get Up Kids was that I missed you entirely um, at MacRock in '96 or '97. Oh my God, you're going way back. Yes. Well, that's it. Wasn't it wasn't '96? It would have been '90 at least '97. At least okay, because we didn't start touring until '97. There we go. So I, d- I didn't see you before that. That wouldn't have that would have happened. But that's what happens. We just forget the years. Uh, and I must have missed the tweet that the show was running early. I didn't have Twitter back then. Um, I don't and think Twitter existed back then. I'm, I'm joking. Oh, okay. I was like, man, have you lost it? <laughs> And I didn't have YouTube uh, to relive six different angles of the show, so I had to take the word of other people that saying the get up. Kids. Oh, we cr- we crushed it. They said it was it you, was you the missed, moment to remember. It was like on a stage made out of balsa wood and <laughs> cardboard boxes, and it was yeah. College <laughs> college games are weird. Yes, and of course Macrock was pretty nuts, and it, and it turned out to be you know someone saying it was a great show, and, and obviously um, it was something that I was got really into with you guys and uh, I think it was a good start. So I missed you, but I heard about you and that's, I think that was a good start. Um, so Mr. Matt Pryor, welcome to the podcast. Hi. Um, and I love in the background, you have um, family in the background, you have dogs barking. Can you hear, they're watching Kung Fu Panda. Can you hear that? <laughs> no. All right. <laughs> um, they may be, they may be doing, my, they may be doing Kung Fu moves while they're watching <laughs> Kung Fu Panda. So we might hear some of that. <laughs> Nice. Um, so I guess I want to. Obviously, we talked early, um, early years, and I'd love to kind of how how, how you learned about bands, like in the, in in the '90s or '80s, growing up. What, what how, how did you learn about bands? Um, we had this really great record store in Kansas City that I ended up working at at one point uh, called Recycled Sounds. It's not there anymore, but it was just, you know, it's your super awesome indie record store and like the people that worked there there were a couple of the jack black from high fidelity characters but for the most part the people that worked there were actually like really helpful i mean they wanted to make a sale so they're like oh you like this check this out oh you like this check this out and i actually started getting into like some really weird experimental noise stuff from from those guys but and then getting into like 
pop punk like Lookout Records and ep- like early Epitaph stuff, and uh, that just and then you know once you throw Fugazi into the mix, that just changes everything. So mm-hmm. it seems I think I don't know if you've listened to other ones, but everyone mentions Fugazi. Well, yeah, I mean it's it's kind of they defined the uh, the two guitar, two singers, drums, bass kind of format. You know what I mean? And the singing over each other thing. Where like they would be singing. I mean, they probably wouldn't call them counter melodies, but that's what they are. Where they're both singing at the same time, but singing something different. I didn't realize that. Well, I mean, I it just now that you say it, it totally makes sense. Well, think about it, because it's like Jim and I do that. Uh, Bob and Chris do that in Braid. The Promise Ring, not so much, because that was just more of just Davy. But uh, Jimmy Eat World used to mm-hmm. with with Tom singing. Yeah, but they don't they don't really do that anymore. No. Um, do you remember the first time that you sang live in front of someone? <laughs> uh, like for forever? The first time ever? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, it was at a coffee shop in Kansas City, and it was called Whistler's Mother. Because there was a – let's see. N- yeah, it was – Whistler's was the name of the bookstore that was downstairs, and then upstairs they had a little coffee shop, and they called it Whistler's Mother. And I played uh, – I'd been in bands before, and I'd played guitar, but that was the first time I actually just sat down. And, and it was like a solo acoustic thing, too, so I just sat down and brushed my long hair out of my face and went to town. Nice. What, what did you sing? Did, was it covers? Was it your own stuff? No, I, it was stuff I wrote. It was pretty bad. I mean, I think I played four songs, but that was about it. And I was shaking the whole time. I, I was hoping it was I was playing outside of a girl's window or something. Like, you know, that's what I was See, hoping you'd say. The, the, <laughs> you want me to be more emo than I actually am. <laughs> no, I just thought that'd be really funny. You'd be like, no, I don't want to tell you. But no. <laughs> um, no, nothing, nothing, that, nothing, nothing that bad. They did the, – god damn it though. They, my, I have a – I don't think I have it anymore. But the Pope's unearthed this video that – someone had of me being the lead singer of a band I was in in high school and um and they like had a party and then they like showed everybody this video to like make fun of me like while I was there just to fuck with me but I'm like 15 or 16 and um I've got that kind of like surfer kind of like long hair but then shaved underneath all the way around and I'm wearing a mother love bone t-shirt and I'm just crooning And (laughs) and it's Probably the first and last time I've ever sang a song without an instrument in my hand. Should we have that up on the website when this launches, or you know? <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't know where to find it. <laughs> Just kidding. I don't even remember the name of the band. Oh yeah, I do. Left of Dial. That was the name of the band. Oh, that's great. That sounds like a college radio um, show. That it was actually just in a warehouse in Kansas City called the Green Light. That I think later on that night got raided by the cops. Um. So from that, I mean, were there some early records you mentioned, Fugazi? Were there were there other ones that you kind of gravitated to, or you kind of wore out the 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 record or 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 the tape? Uh, yeah. I mean, I started getting into music via like heavy metal, like via like glam metal, like Guns N' Roses and Motley Crue and stuff like that. Which then, strangely, with my subscription to Rip Magazine. Uh, Led me. They would always have like some. It's kind of like when punk rock and metal were starting to fuse a little bit, and bands like Prong and you know Corrosion of Conformity and stuff like that. But that really wasn't my scene. But what I really did like was 
Metallica's Garage Days where they do the Misfits cover. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this is the catchiest song I've ever heard in my life. And, you know, granted, it's about, <laughs> I killed your mother. You know, it's a good, very macabre song. But then I went and found the Misfits, and uh, my mom had this rule where I wasn't allowed to wear any T-shirts that had skulls on them. Cause was, and uh, strangely enough, there was one Misfits shirt that didn't have the skull on it, the Misfits skull. And I, we used to go to this T-shirt shop in Kansas City called Xanadu, and you could go get your Motley Crue T-shirts and your Samantha Fox posters and all sorts of shit. And uh, the Misfits kind of led me into – you know, like bad religion and and all that kind of stuff, and you know, you get into like minor threat, and but then once I found Fugazi, it was kind of like that whole DC scene, you know, Jawbox, uh, even like Hoover and mm-hmm. stuff like that, where that's just I was like, this is awesome, you know, that just really clicked with me. But then I was also listening to a lot of uh, like Lookout, pop punk, and uh, you know, Screeching Weasel. I was really into them, and it's just like. Man, these are like really hooky songs. They're really great pop songs, and they're just really fast, you know. And then from be, you know being in in Kansas City in that area, were there other bands or other people that you, you know, sort of you would see a show and hear, you know, something that clicked, or was it was there any show that kind of said, "I'm I'm I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that a lot." <laughs> well, the scene that was successful in Kansas City, the bar scene, was a. Uh, Kind of a, a louder, more um, kind of post grunge, you could say, you know, but like smarter. Not that grunge isn't smart, but uh, it was kind of in that era. And then there were there was a band from Kansas City called Boys Life that uh, was a really big influence on us. They had the the kind of two guitar, you know. It, there's a, a strong tradition in Kansas City of having a really good drummer. Uh, and there's a lot of good live bands that come out of Kansas City, and sometimes it's like because they have such a good drummer. And so they, Boys Life were kind of like that. They always had a really good drummer, but they their songs had more melody, and it was more about like the song structure, like the pop of the song structure itself, and not so much about like aggression, like the way the kind of heavier stuff was. So them and a band called Victory's Humor from Lawrence and a band called Kill Creek from Lawrence uh, were really big influences on us and to the point where uh joe from boys life is who gave me most of the contacts for our very first tour and so because they had been touring a bunch and they were getting a really good reputation and it it used to be like you know he they they taught us our first lesson of of how to tour you know they were doing three dollars a day per diem and you know here's how you find somewhere to stay (laughs) and stuff like that wow that's awesome. Yeah, I mean, it's the actually he was at um, one of the guys from Boys Life was at um, the Christie Front Drive reunion show, and uh, you know they they had high praise as well. They they seemed to get mentioned just as much as well. So that's great. They kind of taught you the ropes. They did, and uh, like Christie Front Drive would come through town all the time, and they were friends with Boys Life and a band called Giants Chair from mm-hmm. Kansas City. They were significantly more mathy than anything that we ever really did but they were really awesome and they were they were helpful and, and good people and uh but the thing I was playing in a pop punk band with Jim the other guitarist of the Get Up Kids and he went to go see there's two instances there used to be there was this club that was open in Kansas City for like a year and it was called the Daily Grind and it was a coffee shop and he went to go see uh Jimmy World play open for Boys Life and he was like I want to do that 
and he got their first record that you that they'll never let you hear and you'll never be able to find anywhere. The one that's before. Is it the one two three four? Is it the pop punk record? Yeah. So he bought that because they were they were transitioning from that into what became Static Prevails, and so like they still had those songs, but then they had also done the split with Christy Front Drive and and you know all that kind of stuff. So, uh, but Jim was like, I want to do that, and it's like, okay, cool. And so like we listened to it, and like the record was like, this isn't what they sounded like when we saw them mm-hmm. at all. But then we had heard Static, and we we're like, oh okay, this is you know. We ripped a lot of stuff off from that record quite a bit. But, um, and then the other one is this, like, and my friend Dustin gets, says it's like the most annoying story, but everybody that was at this show, so I think Boys Life was on tour with Christy Front Drive, and they were driving home, and so they were doing a night drive, and they parked their van in like a gas station parking lot, and it caught on fire. And they, luck, they were all sleeping in the van, and luckily they got, they, you know, panic. They got everything out of the van and then just watched it burn to the ground. And so then they like rented a U-Haul truck and drove to Kansas City. And still to this day, it's one of the best shows I've ever seen in my entire life. Was seeing Boy's Life just like, fuck it all. You know, this could be it. <laughs> you know, wow. Like, we almost died. So that's one of those like, I don't know, one of those legendary... My legendary shows are usually different for the ones in Kansas City from the mid '90s are, are pretty different. They're pretty specific. For you, was it was it three nights a week? Was it two nights a week that you know it was these bands coming through and sort of getting? Because I I mean for me it was a lot of hardcore bands in in Northeast, or it was a lot of you know the bands in the mid '90s. Kind of it was two or three nights a week. It seemed like they they were coming through every few months. Did you feel that sort of same thing that it was like? There was a lot happening, and there was kind of a lot to take in. You know, in retrospect, there there may have been. At the time, it just seemed kind of normal. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I can't I can't really say uh, how many nights a week there were shows. I don't really remember. I was in high school and you know, quote unquote, college for a year, and uh, but there was a you know, there's always been a. A tradition of trying to start an all-ages club in Kansas City, and they always last for about a year. And so there was always some new spot to go to. But then there's a really big music scene in, in Lawrence, Kansas, where I live. And so there was always as long Once you turned 18, you could go to an 18 and over show, and then you could go to the shows in Lawrence and go to the bottleneck and be like, and I see everybody because everybody comes through here because we're the only place between here and Denver. You know, we're like the halfway point between St. Louis, Chicago, and Denver. So, I, I, think, I don't know. I, I I think that's a great thing to be. You're sort of, you know, you don't have the, you don't have the uh, any of the big city kind of uh, crazy guest list. The band's more probably relaxed. The, the kids are more amped because you know the bands aren't coming as through, or when they do come through, it's you know they don't think it's going to happen every well, day. That that is true. I've seen it more so. Like um, like we played in Croatia last year, and that was kind of like you'd think we'd landed on the moon. You know what I mean? They're like, we're so happy. Nobody comes here ever. We're like, we get great bands here all the time. But yeah, they're they're usually pretty mellow. But pe- bands like coming to Lawrence because it's got everything that you need, and it's small enough to like not have any pressure. Um, yeah, that makes sense, I guess, because it's, there's not, you know, it's, 
they they know that there's going to be a bunch of kids coming out and um, all that stuff. Yeah, no, that, you're, you're right. It's it isn't just the you do get the shows. It's not like Croatia. <laughs> um, I was thinking too with the with the reunions that are obviously all happening now and the ten year anniversary stuff and um, why now? Uh, is it just everyone's put the water under the bridge and 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 moved on i mean in in maybe as you looking at other bands and then with you guys as well with the get up kids well i mean the reason you do stuff like that is for money you know what i mean and anybody who tells you differently is full of shit but because like you can still have fun and be genuine you know but you you do things like that because this is a career and you're trying to like put food on the table. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, for us, I was, I can only really speak. Okay. Even though I just made a sweeping generalization for every band that's doing a reunion thing right now, you can use that or not, but like I can tell you the story of why we did it. And when we broke up, when I quit the band in 2004, I, Never wanted to see any of those guys again. Like I, I never, I didn't want anything to do with anybody. I didn't want to do anything to do with the Get Up Kids at all. I was so incredibly burnt, and I felt like this big weight had been lifted when we stopped doing it. And for a couple of years, it was like every time I saw those guys, with the exception of James, who I honestly didn't see that often, uh, it was tense, and it made me uncomfortable. And then one day. In 2008, Rob was Rob plays in Spoon, and Spoon was playing a show in Lawrence. And so uh, we went to the show, and then the next day we got together. The Pope Brothers own a bar here in town called the Bourgeois Pig. And we needed to get together to do, like, some paperwork. like Because, like, the company still exists. The Get Up Kids LLC or Get Up Kids Inc. Like, you still have to pay taxes every year. You still have to do blah, 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 blah. And it requires you know, people's signatures. So it was like, okay, we need to get together. There's some paperwork that we need to do. We haven't filed taxes in three years or something like that. And we got together at the bar and we were having a couple of beers and it was just like, oh, I'm not, this isn't uncomfortable anymore. Like we've been away from each other long enough that, you know, like I, I can remember why I was able to live in a van with you for 10 years. And so then we were like, I wonder if anybody would want to hear us play again. That could be fun. And it seems that they did. And so that's – the reason we did the 10-year anniversary thing is because we felt like we needed to have a reason to get back together. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I don't think that we did in retrospect, but that's what we felt at the time. That was a really long story. Sorry. No, it's not. No, that's actually – I mean – a lot of people were wondering, and I was wondering kind of the same thing. I think I think every band is totally different, and of course money's that, you know, driving or one of the forces to be, kids want to come see us. It's not like you just go out there for the hell of it. Um, and I think um, I think that's not a bad thing. Um, I think they're, the thing I, I love and, and is that there are fans that maybe have grown up with you, and if my age, I think I kind of started when you guys started, but there's other people that maybe five years ago someone gave them something to write home about um, or they gave them on a wire or something and they're going to that sh- that something to write home about tour for the first time and being completely amped. Um, and I, that's kind of the thing I love too that these younger people are getting into it or finding out about it. 
that that took me a while to get used to. It used to annoy me, actually. But then I kind of like realized I was like, this is stupid. Like they're getting, you know, like I never got a chance to see Nirvana. But if there was a chance to see Nirvana, I would go. You know what I mean? Like it's, I mean that's obviously not possible. But. Yes. <laughs> <clears throat> um, yeah, I felt the same way. I never got to see them. And um, well, you know what? Okay, so there's this there's this stigma attached to, and I think that it's entirely possible that bands from that came up when we came up were kind of some of the last people to like carry this burden. I think that you're not supposed to be doing punk rock or indie rock or whatever for profit. You're not spo- you're supposed to be doing it because you love it, and there's a stigma attached to like. And that kind of comes from the Fagazi thing. You know what I mean? Probably a lot comes from the Fagazi thing. But then right after us, it was when bands like, you know, Blink-182 started getting big and, and stuff like that. And they're just like, oh, no, we like making money. I mean, we'll, we still play our hearts out as much as, I mean, they're a weird example. But, like, you know, it's like I, I do this because I like it, but... If I can't make a living off of it, then I just don't have time to do it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Well, the other thing, I mean, at that time, I feel like the Vagrant tours were huge. I mean, buses all rolled up. You know, I felt when that uh, when it played Irving Plaza in New York, it was like, holy crap, this is huge, and this thing's selling out. And I mean, I want to get into that kind of era, the something to write home about era. But just quickly, like, you know, did you feel that? that time or whatever like it kind of getting bigger was there sort of a resentment that you were supposed to still feel like you were in the van and you know staying on someone's floor uh well we started touring in a bus in 1999 uh when something at home about came out because we were doing 65 shows in 72 days wow and so we were like this is insane you know, we 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 need to improve our living conditions in order to do that. And there were a couple times on that tour where, like, we were playing places that, you know, weren't. They were kind of like more punk rock places, and people would kind of fuck with us, but the show would still sell out. So you can't really, like, it's you know, like it's not like when you see a band now and like they've got a a bus and like a, a semi and there's like fifty people at the show because they think they need to have that. Yeah, you know what I mean. It was it was. Everything in our uh, career arc at that point was going up, but it was going up at increments that we were comfortable with. So it was kind of like, okay, now we can get a bus. Okay, now we can go to Japan. Okay, now we can move into this room and, you know, so on and so forth. That makes sense. Um, Yeah, it wasn't like an all of a sudden instant thing. You kind of had an arc to it. Well, and it it felt really comfortable to us because it was just like, okay – we're working very hard. We're going on the road a lot, and we put on a good show, and it's getting better, and it's getting better, and it's getting better. But then when we got burnt and we wanted to do something different, it was such a curveball for everybody that it totally threw us off because it was just like – we're like, wait a minute. You just like what we do. This is just another thing that we do. And everybody like, no, you do that. And it's like, well, we do that too. We do that first thing most of the show. You know, but we do this this other thing too, and it's good. You should check it out. <laughs> Go on this ride with us, man. Yeah, um, I know that. I mean, the the word emo. I mean, um, I think um, 
you were you were mentioning earlier before we started with the name of the website and the podcast Washed Up Emo, and it was sort of a you know of, offensive, and I I think the explanation to everyone is sort of it it was we're sort of a little bit older and we still like this genre, and that's why it's called that. But um, yeah, but I still guys, don't. I don't we, think you have to be washed up to be older. Like I don't want to be. I don't want to be. That was the thing. So true. So I guess for everybody, you don't have to be washed up. You can just be. You can just be normal. You know, my thing. Like we talked about this when we did the something right home about tour uh, in two thousand and the ten year anniversary tour, and uh, we wanted it to be like a celebration, but then to have it be more than just. Uh, I was thinking of Uncle Rico from Napoleon Dynamite. Yes. Who's always like talking about the big game and like throwing footballs all the time. I was like, I, we didn't want that. We wanted it to be like, I, I, you know, this is the 10 year anniversary, but like, you know, we're celebrating the whole catalog here, you know. But I think a lot of kids were like that. I think some of the, you know, they wanted to hear if it's Don't Hate Me or Mass Pike or all, you know, they wanted to hear Holy those shit, they my- missed them. Um, and I think my that kid- was something rad about it too. Tom. Yeah. Tom. Yes. Hang- my kids just turned on the goddamn vacuum cleaner. Hang on. A <laughs> Turn off the vacuum. Hang on. I'll be. I'll be right back. Hang on. Okay. So, before the vacuum cleaner got... Maybe there's a scene in Kung Fu Panda where there's a vacuum cleaner. <laughs> no, it's the fucking popcorn that I made them. They spilled the popcorn all over everything, and now they're trying to vacuum it up. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, I guess with the... You know, you were, you were talking about... You had, you had talked about the word emo, I think, on the 10-year on the tour. Mm-hmm. Is that something you'd said that you guys were all talking about, or...? Oh, uh, the term emo doesn't really do anything for me anymore. I've just kind of accepted it as this stupid, like, letter I have to wear on my chest. Uh, I didn't like it initially. I still don't like it, but I didn't like it initially. Like, when we grew up, and coming from, like, a punk rock scene, the way I tell people, like, email was usually followed by, or predi- you know, coming right after the word fucking. So it's like, fucking emo. Like that. So it was like a really negative connotation and so i it makes me laugh when that's like a thing to be proud of now because it just kind of sounds like it's kind of synonymous with pussy like you're a pussy especially when you're like you know hanging out with hardcore kids and like you know we did a split sevens with coalesce they're like the heaviest band ever and they're like yeah they're just our friends and they're just like like they'd be like, "Why are you hanging out with those emo pussies?" <laughs> it's just funny. I don't know. It's dumb. Wow. Well, the, the, I mean, the, the tours. We've I've talked about this at length. I think the touring thing was different because you would play with the coalesce, and it and it was totally fine. 
Um, I think, I mean, some of those tours, I feel like there'd be like Texas tours, Texas, the reason tours, they were with hardcore bands. They were with like bands that were quieter than them and loud. It just, you know, dashboards playing with Snapcase. Um, it just seemed, uh, at that time it was all one thing and then it just got sort of sliced. Uh, I kind of, I remember it being kind of divisive, but nobody really knew what to do about it. You know what I mean? Like it was kind of like. Like, Texas kind of comes out of that, you know, helmet begat quicksand and quicksand begat Texas, you know, as far as, like, if you follow, like, the... I don't know if that's actually true. That's how I interpret it. It's like, Paige Hamilton invented Drop D, and then Walter put, like, real melodies to it, and then Texas was kind of, like, the extension of that. No, I, I agree completely. If people know the podcast, Helmet was my first favorite band, and so... To me, they were super heavy in this start-stop, and then I got into Quicksand, and then I literally got into Texas after that. Um, See, so, I liked yeah. I liked Quicksand better because like I liked Helmet, but I, I there wasn't an, except for like the hits, there wasn't enough melody in it for me. Like it was just, and then like the technical aspect, I don't really do math rock very much, and uh, that that, but like my friends loved it. But yeah, I, I liked Quicksand quite a bit. Yeah, and I think too. I mean, the with with the talk of you liking the melody of something or you liking this kind of that's where i thought you guys kind of hit the, like the sweet like the the sweet sauce of just it's it's indie it's but you took this like catchiness of like pop punk um and kind of put it together um well i think what it is is that like we were um we were an indie rock band like we were listening to like archers of loaf and you know, uh, stuff like that. But then we ended up being on like kind of a hardcore record label. So I think that we just kind of got lumped in and then we're like, Oh, you're the poppy guys in the hardcore scene. And like, we're not in the hardcore scene. Like, we don't, we don't have anything to do with that. Like people thought we were straight edge for the first like two years that we were touring. Oh, wow. Um, I was going to say too, from, from the, from the four minute mile days, um, you know any good stories from the bidding war? Like any any dinners that were awesome? Like any any of those things where you were like, "What are we doing sitting here?" Um, from that. Uh, stuff. We had dinner with Gilby Clark from Guns N' Roses. He was the guy who replaced Izzy Stradlin in Guns N' Roses, and uh, at the Rainbow in in L.A. I mean, that's that's kind of like secondary rock star. Like it's not really like it wasn't Slash. You know what I mean? Uh, but our bidding thing didn't get too crazy because I don't think they really like we we wanted to sign to Sub Pop for a long time and uh, we were we recorded by Sub Pop and the the A and R guy there like got it and is still a friend he he worked with us on uh, on the last Ghetto Kids record and uh, but we met with Jonathan Poneman and he just he didn't get it he offered us less money than we had had on Doghouse oh wow and so he it was like. No, you don't understand. They still owe Dirk a record. You need to buy them out and give them more money than they got. And not an unreasonable amount of money. You know what I mean? We weren't asking for like half a million dollars or anything like that. But it was kind of like, you're not offering to buy us out. And it's just kind of like, and that sucks. That happened twice where it's like the A&R guy gets it. And then he's, they're like, we could, we could definitely move mountains with this guy. And then the head of the company just doesn't understand. You know what I mean? Ugh. Um, but it's fine. I, guess, I, mean, I mean, it ended up being been... it ended up being Something. a good it ended up being a good decision. 
you know? Well, yeah, of course. It was like, I felt like if that had happened, it, it might have been one and done and we're not talking or it would have been another thing or something. Or I mean, worse, just... it could have been the not a surf thing where you're just in. Well, yeah, I mean, I think we would have been fine if we had done. I don't know. The the label that we were going to sign to is called Mojo. Uh, and uh, we decided on them not because of any money stuff, but just because the A&R guy is still a good friend of ours and he, he really got it. And, uh, they ended up folding like six months or a year after we signed a vagrant. So that could have been bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you definitely dodged a bullet. Uh, Mojo was part of Universal, right? Yeah. And who else was the, at that? Was Weston on Mojo at the time? Oh, I don't remember if they were. Their big hits were Real Big Fish and Cherry Pop and Daddies. They had Zoot Suit Riot money. And they were kind of like, we have our ska band, we have our swing band, let's get our emo band. You know, like, that was really I think, too, it was, it was interesting, the late 90s and you know you didn't have the Facebook analytics to look at you know where the likes were coming from or you know I think maybe the equivalent was like the victory or bridge nine message board and um, was there a moment like as you're on the tour you know there was of those you know early tours on the four minute mile record that you kind of felt wow these are more and more people are coming more and more people know our song someone actually bought it like just the was there any kind of you guys were getting kind of excited? Because that record for me, when I got it, it was instant. You shared it with your friend. You told someone about it. It was that kind of record. Four Minute Mile. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, I mean, it didn't. No, because it was like our first tour was kind of an experiment, and our our first tour was with Braid, and it was over the summer, and everyone was enrolled in college for that fall. Uh. Ryan had just graduated from high school, and so we go on tour with Braid, and we're like, I have a really distinct memory of being in the van and just kind of being like, I think we can do this, like for real. And everybody agreed with me, and so we just did. And we just kept, I mean, it was, we didn't know it at the time, but it's like, it's building a small business, you know? You just start slow, and you just keep hacking away at it, and like, you know, there were a hundred people there this time, and then next time there were 200 people there, and then next time there were 500 people there. But we just kept going and going and going, and so it didn't feel unnatural at all. Like, it, there was never a moment when we were just like, whoa. It was kind of like, well, yeah, there's a thousand people here. There were 700 people here last time. And I, and I think the tours you guys were on were great. I think it was different. If, I mean, I saw you once with MXPX, and I was like, it makes kind of sense. There's a bunch of kids that were stoked. <laughs> that was a weird one. That was, we had, our, our booking agent, Andrew Ellis, uh, that was one of the first, that was the first support tour we ever did. And he, because like, you know, before that point, it's like, going out with Braid, it's like a 50-50 split. The, now you would call that a co-headline, but uh, at the time it was just going on tour. And uh, so the MXPX tour, it was kind of like, this is the first time that like we're we're I don't know it was it was weird it was it was a good tour it was a really fun tour uh, and uh, we got a lot of exposure out of it but it, yeah it's definitely kind of one of those like well because those guys were all into like Fugazi and stuff that we were into they just their fans didn't know about that stuff yet you know 
I was actually thinking about um, James uh, today a little bit and about Reggie and the Full Effect and um, uh, you know I think he was I mean you were talking about Kung Fu Panda I think of him as like the Jack Black of the scene um, energetic <laughs> funny that's pretty uh, accurate um, and I think the adding him to you to the Get Up Kids was such a great dynamic um, how did it when you when he came to the band what for you did it kind of open up to we can do we can write more we can kind of do more than just the you know guitar bass drum sing well we had wanted to add uh a keyboard player we, we had i believe and I, I could be remembering this wrong but i believe we wanted to add uh some like moogie synth stuff a la that dog and the rentals and we're like okay who do we know that could do that because rob even at that point was already starting to collect synthesizers and he had a, a Moog. I'm sorry, it's Moog. I used to always say Moog. And because uh, that looks how it's supposed to be pronounced, but it's not. Anyway, so he had like a, a Moog prodigy and he would be messed. Oh, and then the anniversary we were playing, they were still called the broadcast at the time. And, and they, they're very synth, or they were very synth heavy. And so we were playing with them a bunch. And uh, James started living in, we had a house, Rob and Ryan and James and this other girl had a house on Valentine Street in Kansas City. And, you know, Coalesce would practice in the basement, and then James would go on tour and come back. And then James was a pizza delivery guy. That's, I think that's how we met him. No, we met him through Coalesce. But he would go, he would, he was the only one that was old enough to buy beer, so he would go uh, deliver pizzas all night and then come over to the house with like a six-pack of Rolling Rock, and he would play songs on the piano. And James is the kind of guy where you can be like, Okay, play Eternal Flame by the Bengals. And he'd be like, okay, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. Got it. And then he could just play the whole thing. And uh, Coalesce seemed to be uh, winding down or something. We weren't really sure. And we were just like, why don't you just come on tour with us and play keyboards? And he did. And just and he taught me how to sing. Like, he taught me how to do, like, harmonies and uh, uh, just that thing where, like, you know, if you hit, like, a really good harmony, it'll make the hairs on your arm stand up. Mm-hmm. The money like, note. He ta- yeah, he taught me all about it. Because he was a music theory major, and he got kicked out of college for going on tour with Coalesce. Wow. So. That's awesome. I mean, the... You, you, I mean, there's that story that you, you know, he's passing out these tapes of these songs and um, uh-huh. you wanting to like work with or at least kind of find out about it. Um, what was the, what, what were, are they any of the songs from that demo tape on the first record, Greatest Hits? Well, yeah, the, la- the uh, Brandy's, I think it's called Brandy's Birthday Song. It's, the song's really called Bitches Come and Get Some. <laughs> and that's what it was on the demo, but like most of, like all the songs that were on that demo were on the record, but they were re-recorded at the black at the what well, was Red House at the time. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I just I think he just brought such a great thing to to to, to the band and the energy, and I think he just I mean it was that other level um, that I think obviously it was perfect timing, kind of with the the record. Well, yeah, he was he, yeah he was a big like I almost forget. Because I'm used to those songs uh, from hearing them on stage, and I can't hear the even though he's right next to me, I usually can't hear the keyboards that well. So I'm like, "There's not a like a heavy keyboard line in that song." And they're like, "Have you listened to the record?" I'm like, "Oh, yeah, I guess there is." <laughs> um, yeah, that's no, that's totally true. It just, it, it just for me, it was like another level, and um, I think obviously three years of touring and you know videos, and it just. 
it were you guys at the end of that like three were you just we need a break we need a we need to i mean or was it you're just as motivated as you were when you started uh we were burnt uh we got offered first the green day tour in 2001 we we toured with green day and with weezer and i didn't want to do either of those tours i was so like i can't i'm to- i'm too tired this is this is you know and it's just kind of like Everybody's like, well, we can't pass this up. We can't, like, look a gift horse in the mouth. And uh, we did them, <laughs> you know, and they were successful. But it was very, very tired, very burnt. And then from that, did that was kind of where the New Amsterdam's came about? And do, had you always been writing? Obviously, a musician would all be writing songs. But was it – it's such a departure, and it is kind of the thing to do acoustic. But I feel like it was kind of a different project. Um, well, that was, it was, I had started listening just in the van on the road and at home, uh, more in getting into more singer songwriters, uh, Steve Earle and, and Wilco and Uncle Tupelo and, uh, this guy, Richard Buckner. And I was like, I want to try this and I want to, I need to surround myself with people who understand that kind of language. You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't know. At the time, anyway, I, I don't think uh, Jim and Ryan... I mean, James can play anything, but I don't know that he could play, like, honky-tonk and really, like, like it. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't know. I just wanted to have... I had written a bunch of more a bunch more songs, and I wanted to try doing some, like, mellower acoustic stuff because that's what I was listening to. And I think, ultimately, that everybody was kind of getting into that sort of stuff, and that's kind of what led to on a wire because of that because we were getting so burnt on what we were doing you know playing action and action over and over and over and over again that we were just like let's take a step back and do something like mellow because like we're listening to a lot of you know mellower stuff now i mean i i think i've mentioned maybe this on the podcast but on a wire is uh personally the album i listen to most from your catalog um i don't know if that's weird or anything but um no people tell some me of my favorite songs I think uh, that record ha- isn't great from start to finish, but the good songs on it, I think, are some of the best songs we've ever written. I think Walking on a Wire, um, that riff, like you could have that on repeat, and I'll, I'll, I'll be fine. Um, that one riff. So we, I think that one, I don't know if that I one's think on that one's, list. I think that <laughs> one's good. No, that one is, to me, that is more of a live song, but that's just because I've played it a thousand times. But like... Uh, that one, Hannah and Overdue. Stay Gone's pretty good too. Oh, and Wish You Were Here. Is that on that record? Yeah, it is. But there's some turds on it, you know? <laughs> I think with uh, the Proceed with Caution from Never You Mind is great. And I think the Kill, Killed or Cured record, um, I think that is a missing one that people, if they haven't checked out, need to. Like Maybe I'm a Fool or Watch the World Cave In. Um, those were some, I think... I think those songs, um, either with a band or without, are great. Uh, those are back up online now. I just recently did that. My the the label that put them out uh, went bank or went. I don't know if they went bankrupt. They're not around anymore. So I was just like, well, I'm just going to put them out. And so I I uploaded them to TuneCore and had them. So they're on iTunes again, and they're Killed or Cured and at the foot of my rival. And uh, Killed or Cured is interesting because it was all stuff that was written. When I want, when either I 
was wanting to quit the band or had already quit the band, but we were still on tour. So it's a lot of, it's dark. <laughs> it is, it is really dark. I think that's why I liked it. Um, that was, that's how it, but yeah, just, I like the two, the two sides, the killed version and the cured version of each of the songs. How, you know, I look back at that now and I'm like, why in the hell did I do that? Cause it's just like a, I mean, it, it's cool, you know, if they both sound good, but it's kind of like, why did you take this and like re-record it? Like, what what were you thinking? It's just like a big money pit. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, yeah, I think I mean so f- early two thousands. You know, it was obviously Amsterdam's. And did you feel like you were home at all? Because it seemed like it was. If it was, you know, there was a Reggie thing, or it was New Amsterdam's, or Get Up Kids, and then, um, you know, obviously was that something that you just keep. F- felt that it was getting more tiring and with the guilt show obviously you guys had kind of um splintered off um let's see i don't know if it's a really a question it's more of just the it it, it there no, were a I bunch of new it. okay uh let's see so you start the spring of 2001 we do the green day and the weezer tour and it's just like well, that has to be it and we got offered i don't know if it was that year or if it was later the uh, Green Day Blink-182 opening slot that Jimmy Eat World ended up taking, and we turned it down, and we were just, because we were just like, A, uh, we just didn't want to do it. <laughs> we were just burnt. We are like, we need it. We haven't put out a record in three years. We need to write a new record. Um, so then we were home for a good long time, like, practicing every day and, and writing and, and doing demos, and it, it felt good, and we were going to, like, go into the studio with this like A-list producer and blah, 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 blah. And there's all this like, everyone's kind of stoked about it. And we go and do the record and we like it. And it's, we know it's different, but we, we, we we're like, well, it's different, but it's good, you know? And, uh, when soon thereafter, my daughter was born, I have three kids. This is my first kid was born. And that tour, the On A Wire tour that started in 2002 was like, I don't know, three or four weeks after she was born and it just crushed me. I just, I just was like, I I couldn't leave. It took me probably an hour to get out of the house uh, to get on the bus to go. And then it was just like, I was just drinking way too much, you know, just like I, it wasn't that I didn't want to be there, you know, it wasn't that I didn't like playing the shows I just I was I I don't know if you have kids but like you can't explain it to someone who doesn't have kids how difficult it is to be away from them and I like most of my friends are parents now and I'm like yeah I gotta leave for five weeks and they're like oh my god I've never been away from my family for more than a couple of days and you don't you know it's just it it crushed me so during that time let's see Burnt, burnt, burnt. Do the On A Wire stuff. I don't think we toured that much on On A Wire. I think we just did, like, a full U.S. tour, Japan, Australia, and Europe. And then took a break. And the first real New Amsterdam tour wasn't until 2003. And that was, and the, that was, that was the worst for the wear, right? Yeah. So we did, I did a full band tour of that, and then I did a, a solo tour for that, too. And... Uh, my band was uh, Jay from Hot Rod Circuit and Robbie Pope and then my friend Bill who plays drums in the New Amsterdam's now. 
or whatever the new Amsterdam's are now. And uh, it, it was going, it was going well, and it was good, and it was like okay. But then we got like we had bought the studio, and we were going to go back in to start working on a Guilt Show, and that's when Reggie started touring. I actually had to make a decision between. I had done the first Reggie tour, which was during the Vagrant America era, and it was Ultimate Fake Book were the backup band. It was me, James, and Ultimate Fake Book. And then he had put a band together for – what's the th- record after promotional copy called? Under the Tray. I think it was that record. And it was uh, – Ryan was playing drums and some local guys were, were playing guitar. And it was like right at the same time that Worst for the Wear was coming out and I was like – I'm playing in Reggie. I have to make a decision. I can't do both of those things because they were going to go out at like the same time. And I was kind of like, why don't we just like package them together? And it was just kind of like, nah, that's not going to work. <laughs> it's just too weird. Uh, so I had to make the decision to do my own thing and not do his thing. And then that's when Reggie started getting really goofy. Because when you let James go, when you leave James to his own devices without any kind of an editor, uh, he can think of some really weird shit. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, that last record was interesting. <laughs> There's a lot of fun. Well, stuff he was working there. through some shit, you know. Um, I was thinking too. You were mentioning, you know, your kids and the New Amsterdam's. I remember one of the shows of the New Amsterdam's, and your son was on tour, and he had, you know, the big uh, soundproof headphones on, and uh-huh. and um, he was getting bummed out on stage because you weren't playing rocked out songs. You were playing quiet songs, and he was crying. <laughs> And I loved that he wanted to rock out, so that was always a memory I have of that. Yeah, that's <laughs> of that a very. Tour. I'm a. Uh, yeah, I, I want to dispel any notion of any like rock and roll lifestyle that, other than that, I I, I drink a bit. You know, I, I don't. It's like I, I would rather have my son on stage crying than not. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's funny dealing with the get up kids because Jim has kids, but the other guys like don't and don't want them. I don't think. And so it's kind of like, I have to kind of like, I have to shut up. <laughs> um, and then too with the kids, I mean, the, the Terrible 2 stuff, um, uh, I always kind of wanted to know what was harder, like playing a show for, um, you know, the moms and kids, or was it a show of like jaded 30-year-olds? Not uh, Terrible 2s, but other, ba- you know, when you're playing with the get-up kids or by yourself, like what was the, what was harder? Okay, well, there's... Not, they're not – neither of them are hard. There's two things. One is that you have to tailor your stage banter to the audience. So you can't be like, all right, Cleveland. You have to be like, what sound does a lion make? <laughs> you know? And uh, the other thing is, you know, when you're playing shows for five-year-olds, no one yells out, play Amy. Play don't hate me. Or something like that. I wanted to bring that up. I, you've probably had that song yelled at you more times than any song, right? That and I'll catch you. I'll catch you. In 10 minutes. What 10 was minutes. the – when did it get to a point where you wanted to be like, you know what? We're going to take it out of the set if you keep yelling it. Or was it you understood it? You understood why? Or was it – what was like – what was in your head when that happened? Every goddamn tour. Um – we get together and we rehearse. And this is how I finally come around to it. I don't need to practice that song ever for the rest of my life. When you're performing a song that you're sick of, that people love, and they're having a good time, 
you can feed off of their energy. So it's not a chore to perform it. It's boring as shit to try to practice it. When it's just like the five of us in a room. All right, we should probably run through ten minutes again to like shake the dust off of it. And then we'll probably play it as like a ska song. You know? Just to... <laughs> so, yeah, I, I you know. I, the thing that I think is weird is when people yell out stuff that's like really obvious. Like, play ten minutes. So like, yeah, of course we're going to play it. Just chill the fuck out and wait. <laughs> I, I promise you, it'll be right before we right before we leave. I promise. <laughs> yeah, I, I was telling that to uh, my buddy Nate plays bass in uh, Fun, and I interviewed him for the podcast, and they're having a hard time because they have you know a radio hit, and so like they were like you know if we play that song in the middle of the set, like half the crowd leaves. Wow. And I was like, yeah, man, you got to like ha- make them suffer through the new shit to get to the one that they want. No, that's it. Yeah, you got to make them wait. Yeah. Um, How else am I going to get you to listen to this new song that's like seven minutes long? Yeah. They're like, hey, so who, who, how many of you have our new record? You know, and six people clap and they just yell that same song. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, and as our fans I, I, have gotten older, that's happened a lot more too. Yeah. Um. Well, I was thinking too, I mean, with you guys getting back and doing the Simple Science EP um, and there are rules, um, obviously there was time separated. What did you most enjoy about making this last record? Uh, hmm. I like most of it in general. I think... Uh, I don't know that it was really like a, a cohesive thought. Uh, Rob and, and Ed kind of took the, the reins on it. And that's not bad. It just doesn't... Um, sometimes I feel like it's just weird for the sake of being weird in certain parts of it. And that's not really not really my thing. It's, it's fine. You know, the band's a democracy, so we have to like choose your battles as far as that's concerned. But uh, I think some of, the, some of the things that we wrote... For those sessions is really pretty good, and it's pretty. Uh, it kind of takes what, if you boiled down the Get Up Kids to its core, but then allowed it to like, you know, try different shades on, try different colors. You know, um, I think that's kind of what it is. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. No, totally. I, I. It seemed like it was different. It was like you'd all gone away and done stuff and come back, and after all the years you could hear different things of everybody. Um, that was how well, I, I, I how I envisioned it. I was like, wow, they all came back together. They all have different experiences, and this is what came out of it. And um, I thought that was really great. I think it's it's interesting because, like, if you, you can look at, like, the, the catalog of all the non-Get Up Kids projects that we've all done individually, and you can see how vastly different uh, uh, they are. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, like the Blackpool Lights is, you know, like it, but still has, you know, different feel to it. But it's more like replacementy. You know what I mean? Like it's more like stripped down. Uh, and the the thing that we were trying to find was like the commonality on that. Like we we're just like, okay, so we don't want it to sound like, oh, here's the Reggie song, and we don't want it to sound like, oh, here's the New Amsterdam song. You know what I mean? Like we wanted to like take all of our Personal. It's it's really actually it's a lot like how we wrote Four Minute Mile, 
where it's we just kind of came together and didn't write songs. We just wrote parts and then made songs out of those parts. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, but then we were acknowledging like there's a song on the record called um, "There Are Rules" called Birmingham, and it went through several incarnations before it got to the end. And it was like at the end, it was like this sounds like a fucking Reggie song because it's like really synth heavy. And we're like, well, he is in the band. You know, <laughs> it was mm-hmm. just kind of like, um, so we were kind of like trying to acknowledge those things, but not have it be like, okay, Jim wrote a song on, it's track two, and James wrote a song, it's track four, and you know what I mean? Does that make, I yeah. I, yeah, no, it's it a makes, hard thing it makes to total sense. It's like the, it's the, it, I would feel like, you know, the, the stones, you can feel like, okay, well, that's what, that's the, uh, that's this guy's song, or that's this guy's song. It was, you, you didn't want that to happen. Yeah. We wanted it to be like, there are rules in simple science is what we can all commonly agree on. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's what you take if you if you know I'm into like if if we had like a pipe not a pie chart but like you know like five circles and they intertwine and whatever's in the center of when they when they all meet together is really small, but it's like Fagazi and Super Chunk and you know arches a loaf and stuff so. Well, that was actually something I love asking. Was there a, a song when you guys are in the van or a band that you could all agree on? Was it those three? Was it Fugazi or Archers? Uh, I would say we'd all agree on that. I don't know if James is into Archers or not. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, there was definitely, you know, some Wilco. I mean, Jimmy Eat World was one early on. Yeah, there's been bands like that, I guess. It's hard. See, when you throw, like you said before, like James is kind of the wild card, and when you throw him into the mix, he brings in, I mean, he would listen to fucking hard, he'd be listening to Botch and Converge in the van, and I'm just like, I don't I don't get this. It's not my thing. But then he like threw on that Refuse record, and I was like, okay, this I get. You know? <laughs> like, this makes sense to me. Oh, yeah, definitely. You play people Refuse record and that Shape of Punk to Come, or even the early stuff, like, oh, okay. <laughs> that was light years. Um... Well, I think from the like the the there are rules and simple sides. Will there be more music from that from that cohesive group? Uh, there aren't any plans to do anything right now. Every everyone's kind of doing their own. There's talk of perhaps doing some shows next year. Uh, we're trying to. We've never been to South America, and we've always wanted to go. And we got a, a South American offer, and it's just trying to see if we can make it work with the scheduling because. I mean, just to put it simply, James plays with My Chemical Romance, Rob plays with Spoon, Ryan lives in Paris, and Jim's in school full-time. So really, I'm the only one that has like an open schedule, and I'm a full-time stay-at-home dad. So, you know, if it's going to be, if we're going to go do a show, it's like, oh yeah, we can go to South America for five days. That'd be awesome. (laughs) (laughs) But then there's everyone else's schedule, so. Well, yeah, and then it's kind of like... Like, what is it going to be? Like, you know, we had to do the whole tour last year without James because, like, you know, Gerard and those guys are like, I don't care if you have a record coming out. We're going to go play arenas. <laughs> you know, like, it's just kind of funny. Yeah. It's funny that that happened in 2009 when both Spoon and My Chem had a year off. And so Rob and James were totally free. And that's why, like, the whole 10-year anniversary tour, like, worked scheduling-wise. Oh, okay. Otherwise, uh- it would have... It like we've done shows without Rob and we've done shows without James. I don't think we'd ever do a show without both of them. 
So all we have to do is just think about when Spoon and my chem are off, and we'll kind of everyone will pray. I'm just kidding. <laughs> and, Jim, and Jim's not in school. Um, well, I was thinking too. Is there is there one song or um, album that you're kind of most proud of? From it could be anything that you've kind of done, and or even if you have something new that you're you know, super proud of. Uh, well, I could do. I could break it down for you, band by. Well, at least with my two. I mean, the two's records are just fun. You know, they're just silly. They're not. I'm not like breaking any new ground there. Um, Guilt Show is my favorite Get a Kids record, and I told that to Ed in the the podcast that I did with him because. Uh, and I was thinking about it today. Like we were not really speaking to each other very much. We were not getting along. It was right before we broke up, and it was kind of like, isn't that how like a lot of great records are made? Like, you know, you want to throw out like rumors or something like Fleetwood Mac rumors. Not to compare us to Fleetwood Mac, but it was like I was at least in a really negative headspace and didn't like anybody. But then that's my favorite record that we've made. Interesting. Isn't that weird? Yeah. And then my favorite New Amsterdam's record is uh, At the Foot of My Rival because it was like a, to me it's kind of like our opus. It's I feel like it's the one of the best things I've ever done. And it took a year and a half of like recording at home and, and editing and, and you know making it how I wanted it to sound. And it's got some really cool stuff on it. I don't know. Good songs, good instrumentation. I recorded the whole thing and I was proud of myself for that. Um, yeah, those two. That's awesome. Um, has anyone that you've kind of, uh, you know, been enamored with in music, um, someone that you kind of looked up to, um, you know, later in life or in the past few years come up and said that they, oh, I dug your band or, um, or even if it's someone, you know, uh, that you were into? Uh, I guess M. Ward tweeted that he liked Story Like a Scar. <laughs> and I was kind of like, wow, cool. That's awesome. I don't know. The big thing for me, like, you know, in 2002, when we did the On a Wire tour, we somehow convinced Superchunk to open for us. And it was like, shut the fuck up. Really? They're not going to do that. And they did. And they're like the coolest. They're still friends, you know? That's but, awesome. Uh, one night, Mac lost his voice. And so it was Hot Rod Circuit, Superchunk, and us. And Mac lost his voice, and he was like, needed help. And so, like, Jay Russell came out and sang a song, and I like I came out with Super Chunk and sang a song, and he was like, "Wow, you sound really good." And I was like, "Yeah, I've been ripping you off for years, man." That is the I quote the, of the podcast. I love that. <laughs> I put like... the new Super Chunk record, the last Majesty Majesty Shredding, into the car, and my kids thought it was the Get Up Kids. They thought it was me. That's so. awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, are there any, um, you know, I, this isn't like a downer at all, but kind of, or things that you've thought about, regrets looking back on some of the decisions with the band or with, with music? Um, was there something that you kind of felt if we missed this, something would have happened? Are any of those in your head? Um, not, not necessarily bad, but one of those things where I could have gone either way. I don't really believe in regret because I think it um, doesn't really do any good. Uh, hindsight being twenty twenty, there are certainly things I would have done that I could have, we could have done differently. Uh, we we've always been kind of uh, fuck you, this is just how we are kind of attitude. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And uh, like with On a Wire, when that came out, we could have spoon fed that a little bit. Like we didn't have to go with like 
Can you hear my kids yelling in the background? Yes, that's awesome. <laughs> it's fine. Uh, I think one of them has to go to the bathroom and they're yelling about pausing the movie. Um, I think we could have, looking at it now, if a, if if I were a record label and I was like, okay, this band is making a weird, rec- a different sounding record, we could like market it in such a way that it, it the transition isn't as um, uh, severe. Severe. Like I like if we had like did like Stay Gone as a single first or something like that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Or if we had as a band didn't demand that we play the whole fucking record every single night of the tour. I mean, we were playing for like almost two and a half hours on that on a wire tour because we, we we were like we're gonna play this whole record. We love this record, and that was that was not the best decision. But you know, I mean. That's just revisionist history. It is what it is. But I will say this, and I, I had a – I keep coming back to my podcast because I'm advertising. But uh, I had a talk with uh, Chris Conley about uh, Saves the Day in, in Reverie because we have kind of a, a really similar story. You know what I mean? And he and I both were like, that's probably the best thing that ever happened to to us, to me. To me, well, at least to me and to him personally because it's kind of like – you can't, you can't hurt me, at all. Like you can, you can throw daggers at me, and they will just bounce right the fuck off. Because like I went through that shit and it sucked, but I am a much stronger person because of it. And so now when I get like in, like rules is weird, right? Rules is a weird record, and it's like, yeah, it's a weird record. What else you got? Mm-hmm. You know. Well, because you've got. I mean, it's not like this is the first. Or two records you've had. I mean, I was going through some of these just to kind of look back, and I was just okay. Wow, there's this Getupkis thing, and then the Reggie thing goes here, and the New Amsterdam. It's like been constant. So it's like I think at this point the fans, whatever you guys are going to be putting out, um, it's going to be accepted. And I think if there are people that say stuff, I think I don't know. There's enough people that I think are wants to come see it, want to hear it, and in you, 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 you guys personally are okay with whatever you're doing. There's two kinds of people who like the Get Up Kids. There are people who like... I mean, there's a subgenre of the first group. There's people who only like the first record, which I was wondering if you were one of those guys. But then there's also... It's basically like the, the large pool of it is people who like our first two records and think that... And then, you know, we went... We lost, we got, we lost our minds after that. And those people are more willing to listen to the other projects with an open mind. Like, it's almost kind of like they're fine with me doing something weird, but they're not really fine with the Get Up Kids doing something weird. Does that make sense? Yes. Uh, and then there are the people who are just, who are my favorites, who are, not that I don't love everybody, but like, my, who are just like, no, I get it. Even if it's not like my thing, like I know you're, like you're, they're going on this journey with us and Sometimes they maybe they like James's stuff, and maybe they like my stuff, and maybe they like Jim's stuff, and maybe they just kind of cherry pick it. But they they accept the fact that it's kind of a living organism and that it evolves and grows. And I don't know. Those are but yeah. There's definitely the the, the when the Get Up Kids, you know, turn into Voltron, and you get all five of us together in the same room. At least fifty percent of that room only knows our first two records, and maybe knows. The single from Guilt Show, or Overdue, maybe, and uh, they're usually the drunkest, 
been the loudest at the show. True. Yeah, I, I think there's a similarity um, with that with a bunch of bands um, where there it's yeah you've got half the crowd that knows the first two records and, and wants to hear it, and then there's the the guys that follow everything and you know if pope's doing something they're getting it or if you're doing a side thing they're into it um and i think you're right it's that it's that kind of journey um well and i i would like it if they if people and like the mentality of the concert goer is you know uh a constantly evolving thing but uh we are not the kind of, like we know that you paid good money to get in here and there's a handful of songs that we know you want to hear and we are going to play them for you if you will just shut the fuck up and let us get through this next song. You know what I mean? Like, that's the thing. I was like, well, of course we're going to play Amy. What do you think? We're stupid? Like, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, even Jimmy World played the middle on the Clarity Tour. <laughs> See, that's a, that's, a whole nother, that's a whole nother one I don't... I, I love that they have... Uh, I love those guys. And I think it's... And I'm so happy that they're successful, but it's like you go back and like when you've had radio success and you go back and do your like fan favorite, you know, underground record, you're going to get those radio people there who are like, what the fuck is this? Like, I don't know any of these songs. This song's like 16 minutes long. Yes. The uh, I, I think I don't know if you saw I started a petition for before that tour for them to play the full 16 minutes. Um, Did they not? They The show I saw was 12. Mm. Um, and I think Rick made a joke about it on some live stream, um, which it was awesome. I was like, yes, you know, (laughs) but just those little, but yeah, you're totally right. It's like the, you know, having to have to play the single, even on the damn clarity tour. Well, and I think you can have fun with that. Yeah. I mean, but at the end of the day, I mean, no one wants to admit this when you're coming from like a punk rock background, but you're in the entertainment industry. You know what I mean? Like if you're if you're plant, performing in theaters and you're performing in clubs, you people are paying money. This is not like a community like you're playing in some dude's basement. This is like people are paying money for you to perform well and what they want to hear to a certain degree. And that's not bad, but it's a weird thing to wrap your head around when you come from like Oh yeah, we're just all here together and it's awesome and we're in Larry's basement and there's like 10 people here and it's just fun. Cuz that's what you, you know. But no, if you, you know, if you're playing a show and there's a thousand people there, like you need to connect with each and every one of them and, and give them a good show. Yeah, you have that's- to play in in circles. That's pretty much what it comes down to. Sunny <laughs> real estate. <laughs> And honestly, like it, it behooves you to do that because then there that that person who only knows in circles is then more willing to listen to the other stuff that you have. If you just don't play that, then it's just like, oh man, I went and saw them, and that was guy was just a dick. You know, he like didn't play the hit. Well, that's the, I always feel that it's very similar to radio. You have to play the pop song or whatever it is, and then you have to play a song immediately after that they might like because of the previous song, but it's not it. And you might get them or you might not, or they might change the channel. With Get Up Kids sets, we'd always do the uh, one for you, one for us, one for you, one for us, and just kind of do it like that. Oh, that's and then good. it's like no one, no one gets too bored. Like there's not like that piece in the 
middle of the set we're like, all right, now we're going to break the acoustic guitars out and do like four or five slow numbers. Was there ever, was there a Get Up Get song that you were like, I mean, obviously it's probably Don't Hate Me, but you were like, I cannot wait till this song is over while you're doing it? Uh, as far as like the like the ones that people always yell out, you mean? Yeah, or just uh, in general. I probably ten minutes because it I don't connect with it. Like I've I've been able to like this is gonna sound so cheesy, but I've like been able to kind of reconnect uh, with lyrically with some of those songs from that era to the point where like I can be like okay. I can like understand where these people are coming from and where, where I'm coming from. And 10 minutes because I didn't write the vocals and it's just such a like simple song. Uh, I, it doesn't really, and it's just kind of like a playing the riff is kind of dunna, dunna, dunna. It's just not terribly exciting for me. And, uh, not that I don't love the song. I do love the song. Jim's a great songwriter. Don't get me there. But like, it's I I could I could live with not playing that one, <laughs> except that people go fucking batshit whenever we play it. So well, yeah, I was going to say the emo that. night that we do every month um, in the city in New York City. Here we have we play a bunch of songs. Everyone hangs out and drinks. We have guests come and braid guys have done it. Uh, Jeff from Game Face and Eric from Christie Front Drive. We play ten minutes probably around 1230 because that's when people were really shit-faced on a Thursday and Mm -hmm. it's so fucking loud um Mm -hmm. and that's like that's one of our like the guy I do it with Brian we have like our little chock full of like here are the drunk hits um and so uh I think I think that's something that uh you should be proud of um Matt no no uh, I am I I celebrate I mean I I I celebrate every every aspect of of that you know from people liking that song to people initially hating on a wire. Like I, I celebrate the whole the whole gamut of it. If you think that people go nuts when uh, you play it at a party or at a DJ night, imagine those same drunk people at 1230 who have sat through an hour and a half of all of our other songs to then get that. Because we close with that every night since like forever. And it's just like it, – it's almost – I can't even explain it. It's it's like they're it's like they it's like they've been holding their breath for an hour and a half. Yeah, no, it, that makes it makes sense. I think I, I've totally has two hundred people in a bar versus a venue. That must be like you know it's coming without even thinking about it. You know it's yeah. I mean you know you know it's coming and like it's funny because like I don't know it's it, <laughs> I don't know exactly. It's just you just kind of have to feed off of it. Just we just we end up being just kind of silly. Like there was a point where like. Uh, we were fucking with Jim, and we would start playing real quiet during the solo. Like, the drums would get real quiet. Like, he's playing his guitar solo, and the whole band would get, like, really, 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 really quiet. And then, just to fuck with him, right? And uh, then we realized it was pissing people off, because <laughs> they're like, just play the song how we want to hear it. Don't go into a reggae breakdown in the middle of that damn song, which we've done, too. That's awesome. See, that's, that's what I like. You guys are so comfortable with the song that you can start fucking around with it. Uh, we, you know that thing where it's like, if you do something, if you spend like 10,000 hours or if you do something 10,000 times, then you're really good at it. Yes. We've done that. And, uh, for better, for whatever else happened, we could be yelling at each other. We could totally hate each other, but, uh, 
when we're all in the same headspace and we're all on stage together, we can just read each other's minds practically. And which is weird because then when you look at the only time anybody in like our inner circle, quote unquote, has told us that we played badly was on the Dashboard Tour, which was when we had broken up, but we were still committed to doing this tour. And we just like weren't talking to each other and we were all just getting loaded every night. And they're like, our manager and our booking agent are just like, you guys are not playing well. And I was like, so what? <laughs> you know, like, but when we're all in the same headspace, it's a, it's a pretty fun pretty fun thing. Yeah. Um, well, I wanted to, you know, wrap up and, and, and find out what is next for you. I think you've talked about the podcast a lot. I am super psyched that you're doing one. Um, um, when I started mine like a year ago, it was something that I think was needed. And, um, I think your perspective on it, listening to the first one with Ed Rose is, is great. Um, is that something that, I mean, that you had done and, um, you know, that you, you're totally super into and, um, is this something, just an extension of you doing the music stuff? Well, do you want the long answer or the short answer? I'll take the long. All right. So towards the end of last year, Get Up Kids did like a whole world tour for their rules. And then there were like six more months from when the Get Up Kids tour was going to end to before my wife was in grad school at the time and she there was like six more months where we didn't have any money coming in and so I needed to to tour and that's where uh, uh, Mayday my second solo record came out and subsequent touring and at that point I was like I've been doing this for 15 years nonstop I've been away from my family and I'm not gonna do it anymore I just can't I I was almost to the point of like uh, just getting out of music entirely and uh, a couple of things. So what I did is I went and worked on a farm for the summer, starting in like April, and I just stopped working there. Uh, end of end of September, beginning of October, and uh, I when I would work on this farm, I was just like, well, maybe I want to be a farmer. And when I would work on this farm, I started listening to a lot of podcasts. I started listening to like Mark Marin and and Jay Moore and all the Kevin Smith plethora of podcasting empire that he's built. And I was kind of going, I know, like with Mark Marin, I was like, I know people in another side of this weird world that I could talk to in the same sort of way, and I think it would be interesting. And so I, I kind of was like, okay, I'm going to try it. And I tried it. I did like a handful of them. Like my next one's actually with Sean from Coalesce, and uh, I think it went really well. And like everybody that I interviewed was like, oh. Has it been an hour? And I was like, that's a good sign. If like the people being interviewed – and I have experience like being interviewed. You know what I mean? So I, I kind of know how to like talk to people and I'm just – you know, we're launching it. It's called Nothing to Write Home About, which is you know, both funny and stupid. And yeah, it's going to come out every week. And then I'm, I'm kind of using that as like a vehicle to like also help promote – you know. My other things that are going on, like there's a new AMS compilation and another Terrible Twos record, and if this South America thing works out for the Get Up Kids, then I'll be able to pimp that on the podcast. And yeah, that's where I'm at. What that is was really... what is the new AMS comp? What what is that going to be? It's like all the stuff that I recorded that either didn't make it onto records or uh, got like 
there's like songs from Killed or Cured that are with a whole different band and have a whole different version. It's just basically like all this stuff that like I've always been sitting on and been like, I really like this. I'm going to listen to this. I will listen to this song over and over and over and over again, but I couldn't make it fit on a record, it, on whatever that record was I was working on at the time. And so it's all this like stuff that's like, I think it's it's really strong, like start to finish, because it's all stuff that like, it's not like throwaway stuff. It's all stuff that I've been sitting on and haven't been able to find a home for it. And I'm just like, I'll just put them all out together. And it's called uh, Outroduction is the name of the record. And it's kind of like the tagline being the best band you've never heard. And uh, it's, I'm going to put it out on my label and it's just going to, it's kind of the, I won't say closing chapter to that. It's We're not making any more music, but we might play shows. Because no bands ever actually break up. I don't know if you've if you've picked up on that. Yeah, I, I've actually mentioned that multiple times to people that with all these reunions, it's like no band. Like when Refuse did it, I was like, all right, well that's we're good. Other than other than Blake um, Schwarzenbach rocking it, um, I think he's we're the last. Set. He, he's the last holdout, huh? I I have to say this though, like when I when I quit the Get Up Kids, I really had n- no intention of ever. Like I don't know. I just I hope that people know that that's not like a publicity kind of thing. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. it's just so like I really I I hated where I was in my life and I had to do something to change it. And uh, once that cloud lifted, it was like oh we can be friends again. And that's why we we can't because the ghetto kids are nothing if not honest. Like we can't fake it. I don't know why. You'd think after this many years we'd be able to like fake it, but we can't. So we have to actually like each other in order to play well. I like that. Um, well, I, I'm super psyched for the podcast. I'm glad that um, you're doing that. It seems like you've got a bunch of rad guests um, starting up, and, it, and, it, and, and I think everyone on that listens to this one will be really stoked to listen to yours as well. Yeah, it's a uh, – if I can – can I do a plug? Of course. <laughs> this is great. I've never actually been, like, excited to, like – kind of like promote something as I am about because I'm just kind of like this is so f- it's been really fun like these interviews it's just like this like talking to you it's just like but I'm talking to like other songwriters or or my buddy Justin Crockett who's a roadie for the Flaming Lips and Nico Case and just like oh you've got some weird ass stories being a roadie for the Flaming Lips you know what I mean mm-hmm. um, but it's so it's uh, nothing to write home about it's the name of the show with Matt Pryor that's me and it's ntwha.com is the website. And that'll have, like, updates of, like, every other aspect of what I'm doing. So awesome. check it out. Well, I'm sure everyone will. And I think I think it is funny when you mention, you know, you're like, oh, wow, it's been, you know, whatever. Um, an episode I'm putting out soon with Pedro from Sunday's Best in Jellistown. We were on the phone for almost three hours. Um, uh-huh. And I was laughing so hard um, that it's just one of those things that you just kind of – I think I think the time is right to have these discussions. And um, it just seems like, yeah, you're super excited about it and being able to kind of have that perspective of being on the road, being advanced, having all this stuff happen, um, being able to talk to those people. It seems I'm, – I'm just really psyched for it. Thank you. I'm, I'm excited for it too. It's, it's fun. Nice. And my mom likes it.